Welcome to the What's In My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and thanks for checking out the audio format of our show. If you want to watch these episodes, check us out on YouTube. Just type in youtube.com slash what's in my head podcast. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as I bring you a piece of your childhood each and every week. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button here as well as on YouTube. Make sure to check us out on all social media platforms. That's where I'll ask you, the fans, to drop a question or two for our upcoming guests. You can find us on social media by searching at In My Head Pod. If you're digging the content, leave us a rating and review as that helps us and other fans of pop culture find us. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's in My Head podcast. I'm your host, Julian, and today I'm joined by Dean Taylor. Dean, how are you, sir? Very well, and you? Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know the name, you're going to know the name as soon as I mention all of these shows he worked on, specifically during the heyday for the cartoons that I'm wearing on my t-shirt right here. Dean himself worked on with David Feast, Cow and Chicken, and I Am Weasel, and I believe they had IR Baboon as well, too, didn't they? They sure did. Oh, man, what a, nice, what a time to be alive. The nice part about his T-shirt was that his name was written upside down so he could read it. <laughs> oh, shit, I didn't really think about that. That's, that's, that's yeah. brilliant shit. Did you come up with that, or was that something David came up with? No, that's David. Anything funny that is what David came up with. That man is a genius, and he's such a nice guy to talk to. I've gotten the chance to talk to him and then Charlie Adler, of course, the voice of Cow Chicken and almost every other damn character on that show. Right. Um, but uh, they were fantastic people. Uh, but taking it taking it like right to the heart of the matter, man, when did you meet David, and when did you get on board for Hanna-Barbera and Cow and Chicken? Uh, well, getting on board with Hanna-Barbera was, was sort of an interesting process. It kind of came out of left field for me. I was working on a kid's show as a presenter in South Australia. And, um, well, in fact, I was working on two or three shows. And one of them, the live show that went to air every day at 4 p.m., I I turned up to do my bit, which was usually art-related segments, either painting on camera or talking about it or whatever was art-related. And they said, a bit of a change of plan today. We've got a special guest that we just landed uh, Mr. Bill Hanna. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he was in Adelaide. That's where we were based in South Australia. And he was there promoting uh, Flintstones on Ice Parade, mm-hmm. which, which at that time meant people wearing blades going around on a frozen surface. <laughs> um, and they said that he very graciously uh, agreed to come on board and do an interview. Mm-hmm. So they said, we're going to put him with you. And it was meant to be a three-minute segment. They let it run for 13 minutes because oh, we, wow. started, we started drawing together. Mm-hmm. And I had genuine questions. I was, I was actually kind of a Warner Brothers fan. Mm-hmm. And I always thought Hanna-Barbera was the, the, the sort of poorer cousin in a way. <laughs> yeah, I was very, very much into Daffy Duck and the kind of cynicism and the satire of the Warners. So I was questioning Bill Hanna why wouldn't you give this character more interesting things to do? And why wouldn't you? And I was actually kind of pushing the envelope, but he enjoyed the banter. Mm-hmm. And he had a very, you know, nine Oscars later. He's, he's got an answer <laughs> for everything and he knows what he's talking about. So he put me in my place pretty much. But after the show was finished, I was called up to the green room and uh, he offered me a job at his Sydney studios. And at that point, I hadn't even considered working in animation. Why not? I was a fan of it, but my, my path at that, at that time, I was about in my early 20s and I was into television, mm-hmm. theatre scenery, 
doing window displays, sign writing. I kind of had a job already that sort of kept me um, focused. Yeah. I mean, I was a fan of animation, but I just, it was just something that I hadn't considered ever getting into. It's wild. We all, I always hear different stories on how somebody got to where they're at and it never ceases to amaze me each time. It's, it's, it's like, yeah, I just started drawing and then I kind of fell into it. And then I went to college for one thing and then it ended up being something else. And he's like, I'm so glad so many of the people that I've talked to, they're like, I'm so glad I went down the animation route by scoring what I originally wanted to do. Um, looking back at that now, man, uh, what was Bill Hanna like? Did you get to talk to him too much after that? Or was that just like a one and done type of situation? It, it felt like it was a one-time opportunity and I was, mm-hmm. and I was great, grateful for that. And he was very gracious and uh, very respectful. I, I was really touched by how bothered he could be with people. You know, I've sort of seen him as a bit of an untouchable, but he was very much the opposite. Uh, but he, at that time, was coming out to Australia to his Sydney studio quite a bit. Yeah. In fact, uh, he, he came out quite early on and was down in the parking lot helping the carpenters to build desks. Wow. And he, he bought an apartment in Sydney and he'd come out and he would spend six months of the year in the Sydney studios. Mm-hmm. And because of the way that I met him, we did have a sort of special relationship that was a little bit more uh, to one side of the I wasn't so much a cog in the wheel. Yeah. As, uh, and so we got on really well. And when I left Hanna-Barbera eight years later, he contacted me and had me uh, as his kind of traveling gun. And I would <laughs> go to go through to the Asian studios and train layout, layout artists. And, and, and I continued to have a regular input on his shows. That's really cool, man. Uh, I don't get to hear too many, uh, Hannah and or Barbera stories. So it's, it's always nice that we get to go down this road whenever, whenever they do come up. The ones that I've heard are fantastic. Uh, I've Robert Alvarez. I told, we, we talked a little bit about him earlier. Um, he told me one where him and his, his good buddy, James Walker, or Tim Walker, excuse me. Um, were going to the old Hanna-Barbera studios and they would take all of the storyboards. They would take all the cells and they would just throw this shit away and they throw it in the dumpster. Yeah. And him and him and Tim would go out there and they would salvage anything they could. And he was like, uh, he came out there and he chased us out with a pipe or a, or a um, golf club. One time he's like, get out of here, get out of here. He's chasing these kids off, you know, they're riding off on their bikes and stuff <laughs> like that. So it's really cool getting to hear some of these stories. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, kind of flash forward and just just for a few, man. Uh, so when do you come on board for David and Cowan Chicken? Do you remember when you start hearing about this one? Uh, I met Dave. Uh, I, I used to go to Los Angeles quite regularly for Bill mm-hmm. um, and pick up shows and just meet and be briefed. And so I was in Los Angeles quite a lot. And I met Dave as he was doing animation on one of the features I think one, once upon a forest or I forget mm-hmm. the name of it. It wasn't very memorable, obviously, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, uh, I know I don't did notice Dave. He was in a room with three other guys and he was, he was animating straight ahead. So he had a piece of paper that was, um, five or six fields long. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just the size of a 12 field disc. It was like a pan piece of paper and he was drawing the animation straight ahead just pose to pose to pose to pose 
and uh, and I was pretty impressed by that because he was not getting any of them wrong either. Yeah. He was working nice and loose and rough, and you could tell from the individual poses even before uh, the flipping process, uh, you could tell that it had this really great sense of humour and great spirit. Mm-hmm. And and um, I I'd started chatting to him, and he, in his inimitable way, just grinned and uh, took it all in. I got the impression, well, friends of, I, friends of mine who know him from San Francisco as well have said he's like the Gary Cooper of animation. Oh, yeah? But he's like the big silent cowboy. <laughs> it, it just doesn't say much, but it all comes out through the, the drawing hand and the pencil. Yeah, that, that's really cool, man. He, he was such a cool guy uh, when I had him on here. Um, it felt like, like, like you were just saying, he's a very quiet guy. And it, it felt like the first couple minutes is like a feeling out. The, the, every podcast is always different. Some people like to get on here and they're chatty Kathy. Some people I've got to like get his, I got to lead them to wherever it is that I think the, the, the conversation might go. And he was somewhere in the middle of those two because he had no problem giving the information. If you asked the question, I, I just felt like I had to ask the right questions. When I talked to David, I was so damn nervous because that was like my third or fourth interview. Even though I released that one a few months ago, I was trying to get more of the cast and crew on before because I like getting as a bunch of you guys as possible. That way we get six to eight weeks of cow and chicken stories or six to eight weeks of samurai Jack stories. Uh, wow. When it's just one and done, it, it kind of feels like, oh, man, I feel like we missed the mark. We could have hit the sequel. We could hit the, the trilogy, um, you know, so I, I saved on to his for as long as possible. But I was like, man, people have really been asking for this episode. So I got to release it. Um, and I was so nervous when I talked to David, like I said, his third or fourth interview. And this guy was a huge part of my childhood. And yeah. I was sitting there and I treated him like a gorilla in a, in the zoo. Like I didn't make eye contact for a little while. I was looking down. And I was like, I'm just going to look at my feet and hopefully I can bumble through this shit. And maybe somebody would enjoy this stuff, man. But he was such a sweet dude and he was such a cool guy. I'm so glad I got to talk to him. And him, him talk, talking to him lead me here to you. And it led me to Charlie and it led me to a whole bunch of people. It opened up a lot of doors for me, getting to talk to just more pieces of my childhood as it went. So well, obviously, what's that? Go ahead. Uh, sorry, I, I was butting in. Oh, no, you're perfectly much. fine. Um, that Dave apparently liked my work before we'd met. Yeah. So he he because uh, you know doing what he does, he always relies on spirited layouts, and mm-hmm. you know they don't have to be perfectly drawn, that, which is great because that's not what I do. <laughs> um, but I do I do manage to capture the spirit of a scene, mm-hmm. and uh, he respected that. So we became sort of uns- unsung close friends very quickly. Yeah, and and I just loved his sense of humor. He he represented to me what animation is all about. You know, just shut up and do something funny. Yeah, <laughs> and he's very good at that. And um, that when we kind of cross paths a little bit on different projects mm-hmm. on several occasions after that, but it wasn't until I was working in Ireland and I got a call from Dave, and he said, I, "I've just." been financed to do a pilot episode for cow and chicken and uh, i want you to do the layouts and i said well all of them and he, and he said yeah it's, it's just a it's just a pilot so 10 7 minutes 10 minutes 
Mm-hmm. He said, you can do the layouts and I'll animate it. And that's what we did. But when he sent me his storyboard, what used to happen and, and in fact happened then was the minute I started to translate the storyboard into working layouts for, for animation, mm-hmm. redrawing the, the, uh, the poses and getting into the spirit of it, I was actually belly laughing out loud yeah. while I was working in my uh, temporary upside-down light table in, an, in a hotel in Ireland <laughs> with the desk lamps, with the lid off the desk lamp behind it and... and um, just having a ball, just so funny. And I would I would email it, um, Dave questions if I had them, but if I didn't have something, I'd just make it up. Like, how much does chicken weigh? <laughs> <laughs> he'd, he'd write back and go two pound. Nice. <laughs> now, and when I had, go ahead, excuse me. I'm sorry. No, but that was it. It was it was it was kind of a, a situation where I'd send the work off. And if I didn't hear back, then I knew that it was fine. And, uh, and that was perfect. I didn't need to have a conversation. That's awesome. Uh, something I just started doing recently, whenever I have somebody on, um, what's your favorite David story? Like whenever you hear the name David, you know, David Feast for the creative count chicken for those that, you know, probably aren't following along at this point, but if you don't know who David Feast is, man, what the hell's wrong with you? Uh, but what's your favorite David Feast story? Whenever you think of David, man, what do you think about first? I, I can't help but think about the first time I met him mm-hmm. and just watched him in action, quietly smirking and listening to the t- carrying on of the room mm-hmm. and just, pouring his genius out on the page without being disturbed yeah that's that sort of spoke to me a lot i just thought whoever this is i really like him yeah and and i and i respect him in all in the same breath and that uh, that sort of initial contact was my most memorable that's on a personal level but um on a professional level um the fact that he sold cow and chicken Mm-hmm. as a pilot which the episode the pilot episode is called no smoking yeah and uh and it was well i'm sure you talked to him about this but uh it's pretty pretty challenging stuff to actually be funded for you know in this episode the devil tries to convince chicken that smoking is a great idea yeah <laughs> the devil who by the way is naked yeah ass cheeks for days <laughs> yeah and he and he walks by bouncing from one cheek to the other, and uh, and, it, and that just kind of said it all to me about the Dave that I knew mm-hmm. was now the successful Dave, um, successful in that that to, to sell your own program and such a controversial one, pretty out there for Cartoon Network and Hanna Barbera to, to buy into that. So the, the respect level went up quite a bit from there. Yeah, when you think about it now, there's no way in hell. No way in hell is that cartoon getting made in 2021. Yeah. That's that's a byproduct of a, of a bygone era right there, man. That will never get half of the shows on this shirt, man. You will never get a style of a show like that alone because everything's, I don't want to say everything seems to be cookie cutter because there's so many people I've had on this show that are in the industry still and are still working on phenomenal cartoons. So don't take that as a slight, but everything during this era was different. I mean, just look at the characters on 
the shirt, man. Every everybody was different. Everybody sounded different. Everybody looked different. Everybody had, was driven by different. Uh, I think my dogs are down there barking, but everybody was driven by something different, man. So everybody had a different purpose at the end of the day. Um, and it, it was just a wild time for cartoons specifically. Uh, just all the stories that I've heard, it really seemed like it was the wild, wild west of animation. But everybody started to get, re- you know, real, reeled in. Is that a right word? Reeled in towards the end of it. Um, yeah. When. Cow and chicken is hot and heavy. Are you doing layouts the entire time or were you starting a storyboard as well? Or how'd that work out for you? No, I, I just did layouts. But um, the way that I do layouts is that I, I think I'm doing the storyboard. Mm-hmm. So storyboard is a, a, a very basic uh, plan. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I implement camera moves, scene planning, reuse. I, I try and maximize reuse setups so that the people, the crew that follows on can do a better job without having to find their way through all the challenges. Yeah. So I, so I problem solve when I'm doing layouts. And like I said before, I, I work pretty rough. I, I don't tend to follow the model, mm-hmm. uh, which is the worst thing you can do. Animators <laughs> hate it. But I will find the spirit. It, mm-hmm. it was important for me to know that chicken weighed two pound because that, that influenced how heavy he would fall and how, how, how he would walk and stride. And so I try and find the spirit of, of the character and the essence of the scene. And like I say, if I can problem solve enough of the technical aspects, that will allow the animator uh, or whoever follows on next mm-hmm. to do a more enjoyable job and therefore the product is going to be uh, more appealing. You can feel the goodness coming off the screen instead of the pain. Oh, a hundred percent, man. There was nothing but joy uh, whenever I would watch cartoons from this era, even cartoon. Like I said, I, I don't want it to make it sound like I've, I've gotten a few comments out here where it seems like I shit on the, on the new stuff. And it's not that I shit on the new stuff. It's just the new stuff really isn't made for me. And even if I go back and watch this stuff as an adult, this stuff wasn't made for an adult in 2021. The stuff was made for kids back in the nineties and adults back in the nineties. Like there was so much stuff that I watched uh, or so many of these episodes that I watched from cow and chicken. I'm like, Holy shit. I didn't see that one. That one went right over the head as a little 10, 12 year old getting that shit. Now at a 32 year old, I'm like, Holy shit. These dudes were geniuses. And these guys and gals were having fun doing this show. To yeah. your previous point, man, you can tell when something's phoned in and it's just for money, man. You can tell when it's for, for profit. You can tell when it's for passion. And yeah, you guys were making money, making cow and chick and all these other cartoons that were going on at Hanna-Barbera at that time. But you guys could tell there was something different, right? I don't know if it was just it was a younger generation. Something different was happening. Uh, yeah. There was just this vitality that you could feel like everything was just popping and screaming off of the the, the TV. It just felt like holy shit, cartoons are different, man. And it was a great time, really. Yeah, it was. It was. And um, I think one of the big differences is that the uh, broadcast producers, the networks, the executive level started to have more say in it. And uh, that's why, in a way, the product became a little more sanitized Mm -hmm. uh, because they were putting up money and they wanted to get their money back. So the, I, I personally think it was a mistake uh, in many ways to start building shows around groups of kids. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever happened to a crazy duck and a crazy rabbit, no, 
and a rooster that talks like Colonel Sanders and, uh, you know, and a, and a chicken that weighs two pounds who gets taught how to smoke cigarettes by the devil. Um, <laughs> and he's got a boneless uncle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or an, a, and, a, and a friend who needs to wear his T-shirt upside down so he knows who he is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's nothing to do with a, a politically correct group of children having a, a very timid adventure. And uh, that's how I see the big difference. Uh, I remember I, I worked on Flintstone Kids. Mm -hmm. uh, I love Panther that show, and, by the way. Pink Panther and Sons, mm -hmm. uh, Tom and Jerry Kids. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you put the word kids in it, it automatically put up a whole lot of political Barriers. correctness. Yeah. And, and it limited you what you could do. I remember I, I had the opportunity to have lunch with Chuck Jones. And, uh, and he said to me, so this is when I was working on Nightmare Before Christmas. And he said, so what else have you done? And I went, I, I worked on Tom and Jerry Kids. And, I was <laughs> and he went, yeah, I've seen that show. And I said, yeah, I, I try and think of it as income. And that's the only thing that gets me through it. Like you're talking about the man, you know, the man. Um, Oscars for his Tom and Jerry and, you know, he needs no introduction. But that to me is what happened. That's when the fun started to get sort of, uh, what's the word, when you pan for gold, when you sift through. The <laughs> oh, um, I don't know, but it's going to come to us a little bit. I promise you that. So, <laughs> Well, panning for gold started to get a bit harder. Yeah. Oh, the I well think. started to dry up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just think uh, the, that craziness, because the like you said, it's no, no point. It's not like we're tearing the new stuff apart because where it is the new stuff, you know, it's, it's been around for a long time. It's just not stuff that really appeals to me. Yeah. And, and I accept that, you know, it still takes the same amount of hard work and talent and, and uh, I would in no way ever sort of criticise it for that reason. But if we're talking about fun and insanity, there were different levels before. Yeah, there, there really was, man, when, like I said, I always have to put that little disclaimer out there. I'm not shitting on the new stuff. There's just stuff that's made for me and there's stuff that wasn't made for me, man. And cartoons really aren't made for adults these days. They used to be back in the day. You know, Looney Tunes was not made for kids. Everybody I've had from Linda Semensky to Jerry Beck to Robert Alvarez to insert whatever name, Fred Cyber, insert whatever name of anybody I've had on here says the same thing about the Looney Tunes. And that was one of the first cartoons I remember seeing. The Flintstones weren't made for me. Those were made for primetime adult. It was it was to count, not I want to say counteract because you can never go or uh, counterbalance, whatever you want to call it. You can't go head to head animation to live action back in the day. But but you know today cartoons are looked at as kids, the kids medium where live action yeah. is an adult medium. And back then it just wasn't the case, man. It was, you know, adults were going to watch these six, seven minute Looney Tunes in between movies at the movie theaters, man. And a name that has not come up very often. Uh, I think it's only come up one other time. And it was with another animator called Chris. Uh, not, I was going to say Chris Battles. And that's not the guy. Chris Bailey. Uh, Chuck Jones came up. Um, so, but I would love to hear, do you got any cool Chuck Jones stories? Because we don't get to hear this man enough. And he is definitely one of those. He's on a Mount Rushmore of animators and creators. We're getting down right down to it. So, um, well, 
the honest truth of it is sadly um, the director on Nightmare found out that I was having lunch with him mm-hmm. and called and called a daily session at lunchtime. So I got a call at the restaurant to come back to work. Really? So I didn't get to see, stay for the full lunch. Um, however, it was, it was kind of funny because we, it, we, he was on a tour of the building, mm-hmm. came to look at the facility and the film and, and uh, we just hit it off. You know, when he came into the art department, he loved all the, the artwork, which we had wallpapered to the roof. Yeah. And, and uh, he said, so what are you doing for lunch? And when I'm done with the tour, we'll grab a bite. And I thought, well, that was kind of a pleasant shock. And, and I, he, he said, I'll see you down the front. Well, down the front was his limousine. And the guy was like wiping off raindrops mm. one at a time. And, and, uh, and he stood there and I was standing there in a denim jacket and jeans. And I looked like I was, a, I shouldn't have been there. <laughs> And he was keeping a very close eye on me. But then, then Chuck came out and he said, come on, let's go. And we jumped in the limousine, much to the driver's surprise. And I said, you know, the place is only 100 metres away. And he goes, yeah, but why drive? Why walk when we could drive? <laughs> so we had to go around two blocks to the way the one-way streets worked to get to the restaurant, which we could have walked to in five minutes. But it was it was very funny because the whole time we were in the car, he'd point to somebody sitting at the bus stop and he goes, what do you think that guy's thinking right now? Mm-hmm. And, the, and he was making jokes about just people walking down the street and he's just firing them off one at a time. And his, he had his daughter and his granddaughter in the car there as well. And they just sat there shaking their head like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> or still. And, um, it was very entertaining, and I thought this is this is weird. I'm sitting in a back of a limousine with Chuck Jones making jokes about people. That's fantastic, and you brought you brought it up a couple of times. So we're going to talk about uh, Nightmare Before Christmas because it's it's one of those movies that I look back and I think fondly of. And there's so many fans out there that love absolutely love this movie as well. Um, but before we get to that, man, uh, so. Cow and chicken, it's going. Do you, I, I try to steer away from these questions specifically because, like I said, this is almost 30 years ago now at this point. The cow and chicken was Aaron. Um, so trying to remember what, what you do. Me specifically, I can't remember what I did last week, mainly because I work in the restaurant industry. The last two and a half weeks are all a blur. Anywhere from a 14-hour day is what the average was the last two weeks. And it's been a long, long, long two weeks. So I can't remember what I had for breakfast last week, let alone what I had did 30 years ago, right? So I try to stay away from these questions, but I'd be remiss not to ask, man, do you have a favorite episode that you might have uh, worked on with Cow and Chicken? <laughs> I... Oh man, that is a really hard one. Mm-hmm. That sounds like such a cliche response, but I'd have to say the pilot episode was my absolute favorite because it was challenging, fresh, and invigorating. Mm-hmm. And it, we felt like we were doing something we'd get into serious trouble for. You know, it was, it had an element of piracy about it. <laughs> uh, Swashbuckling. <laughs> Felt like we were doing it and the prison guards weren't catching us. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that would be my absolute favourite. But I'd have to say consistently, for one reason or another, all episodes had their highlight. Mm-hmm. Um, the I Am uh, Weasel, one that I remember the liking the best, is when he gets commissioned to build a bridge to France <laughs> and the French don't want it. <laughs> and they make him re-divert it to Mexico. Oh, that's some bullshit, ain't it? <laughs> yeah. 
but um, I just I can't think of it's they are all like a uh, clothes in a tumble dryer. Yeah, um, just like a whole lot of clown suits in a tumble dryer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're all funny, but they they all have their different highlights. I'm sorry I can't be more specific. Oh, no, it's perfectly fine, because I guarantee you, as soon as we get off this, this Zoom call a little bit later, you're going to be like, oh, shit, why didn't I bring that story up? And that's the best part about this podcast, Dean, is if you have fun and you want to come back, man, we can do a part two, a part three, a part four. I mean, we could do an entire episode just on, you know, you working in the early days of Hanna-Barbera. I mean, that's such a fascinating topic. I don't get to have very many animators, very many writers, very many voice actors, because you know, unfortunately, man, you know, we don't last forever. We don't live forever. So a lot of those stories have died with the people that have passed on, you know? So that's the mm. best part. Like I said, about best part about this medium is, is as long as the, the guests are having fun and I'm having fun, man, we can sit here and talk for hours. We can sit here and talk for days. There could be parts one, two, three, four. This shit can go all the way up to episode 12, just with Dean Taylor alone. Cause of the stories I'm sure you have, and all of these stories will trigger something down the road. So you might not think about it now, but I'm pretty sure, like I said, as soon as we get off this call, the juices are going to start rolling. Like, ah, shit. I forgot yeah. to tell him this story about baboon and weasel. And then the executives were coming in. They said we couldn't have this. So like I said, we, that's, that's a story for another time. Um, yeah. Transitioning into uh, I Am Weasel, man. David told me that this, I can't remember if it, it, it was it, was I Am Legend your favorite book or his favorite book? I, I can't remember on that detail. That was, that was Dave's. David's. Uh, I just yeah. started reading that. It's a phenomenal book. Completely different than the movie because I, I saw the movie first with Will Smith. Phenomenal movie. One of my favorite movies of all time. Um, so I started reading the book over the last couple of days, about halfway through with it now. It's a great book. Um, but when did you start hearing about uh, that, hey, they're going to option us for a second show now, and I Am Weasel is going to be what we're going for. Uh, I started to hear about it from Dave. He said, you know, I can't guarantee anything, but this, they're making noises, yeah. uh, and it looks like it may may happen. Because uh, I, I think I Am Weasel, if my memory serves me right, was part of Cow and Chicken, and, and, uh, mm. and it was then needed to make up a third cartoon as, as mm-hmm. a middle middle cartoon so bookend cow and chicken with one extra in the middle and which i thought was a challenging idea because you wouldn't want one to dilute the other but you know dave being dave he's never going to let that happen so he was able to consistently um spread the the power of the humor across all three equally which was very impressive it really was. It didn't seem like because Dexter had did it. Dexter had had it with uh, fuck. I'm going to get crucified for this one because I can't remember the name, but the Justice Friends, excuse me. And then they had uh, Dial M for Monkey. So they had, you know, a Dexter and then a Justice Friends and a Dial M for Monkey. And it would bookend each one of the Dexter episodes that they would have. So they kind of did that with Cow and Chicken as well with I Am Weasel and I Are Baboon. Um, do you remember, you know, what those talks look like when they said, yes, this is going to go to a series or this is going to go to a segment. Do you remember like what those talks look like or what they sound like? Were you guys in the writer's room just shooting ideas around or what do you remember about that era? I I was in another part of the world altogether. Okay. <laughs> I, I was mostly working in Ireland at the time mm-hmm. and then uh, back to Sydney and I was commuting between Ireland and Sydney. Yeah. Uh, and doing it all literally from hotel rooms and uh, 
That's so insane. I, I had a uh, traveling light box made up, mm. which was um, like the size of a briefcase with sliding peg bars and a Perspex front on it. And I used to set that up and take the lampshade off of a lamp in the hotel and put the light inside and, uh, and just used to work on that. And, but it was, it was really interesting for me because I was heavily involved in the outcome of the shows. Yeah. Uh, but, but I wasn't actively part of the process. But just working with Dave, there was kind of an unspoken language that went on. You know, mm-hmm. he, would, he would send his scripts and I would, I'd be able to scope through a script uh, or, or board, whatever came first, because sometimes they overlapped. Yeah. Um, and I was able to find the heart of what he was trying to say or do and what, what was the funniest pinnacle of the, of the episode. Mm-hmm. And how to how to kind of climb in there and and then slide out of it. So I didn't really need to be part of a team. All I needed was Dave. Yeah. How heavy was that briefcase light box? Yeah, it was pretty heavy. It was ridiculously heavy, and, yeah. and it used to have. Uh, it used to be rigged up with fluorescent tubes inside and a transformer with curly wires. So you'd put it through the X-ray at a. At a, at a <laughs> at an airport security and I'd be crowded around because I was going through Asia quite a bit too. And uh, I remember one time in Korea, I had to actually animate something mm-hmm. to prove what I was using the desk <laughs> for. And, but it didn't end there. It was, I used to think, oh, this is great. I can work on the plane as well. Yeah. This is when I used to think that was a good thing. And, uh, these days when they say arm the doors and cross check, I think, thank God, nothing. <laughs> I don't have to do anything. I can do what I want. Um, but what would happen with the light box would be everyone would sort of finish their meals and switch out their lights and snuggle up to go to sleep. And I'd hit my light box, boom. And it'd be like a tennis court lighting up the, the cabin. And everyone would start wrestling around and the hostess would come up and ask me to turn it off. So I ended up stripping all the lighting out of it and I just use it as a drawing table. Yeah. You still have it? I still have it. Oh, that'd be really cool. If you can, can you take a picture of it? And then we'll, uh, we'll put it in here uh, a little bit later. Like when I, whenever my guy, uh, Larry gets this, I like to put in like little photos of people have photos, um, sure. storyboards, but I'd, I'd love to see a picture of this thing, man. It's that's cool as hell. Um, yeah. what does it, does it still work? When was the last time you might've uh, rolled it out and see if it still works? Oh, I used it two weeks ago. Oh, that is so awesome, man. I can't wait yeah. to picture this. It's going to be so cool. Um, yeah. With uh, how, how often would you have to travel back to the States? I mean, uh, David told me he would, he would live up in, I think, Sacramento was where he would live at. And he'd yeah. fly down uh, on his days off type of thing, come down for a day or two or three days, and then he'd fly back home and do everything uh, remotely from his house. That's right. Um my trips were not quite as regular as his, mm-hmm. fortunately. <laughs> so I had a few more hours involved. Oh, that's a long um, flight. <laughs> um, but I did used to commute quite a bit. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I, I went to Los Angeles enough times to, to really know my way around. Yeah. Um, I don't know, 25, 30 times. Mm-hmm. Um, they're always in the high numbers. When I was working in Ireland, it, it, at one point, it was 
40 flights over a four-year period you know so it's it sort of adds up that's so that's such that's what a 12 plus hour trip from from uh, well to europe it's it's about a 30 hour round trip to that is la so is the la it's a 12 or 15 hour one way that is so insane. When I was in the military and I hit my first deployment, we went to a little island called Diego Garcia. Um, it's owned by the British and then the British subcontract, subcontracted out to the Filipino people and the Filipino people come and run it. So they ran all of our MWRs, the movie theaters, the restaurants. Uh, they were part of the cleaning crew. They were part of like everything, maintenance. They did everything on the island, right? And mm. when you leave there, if you do not leave on a ship, you have to take a rotator, which is you getting on one of the big ass cargo planes and then you're hitting every single base until you get to your base that you're supposed to be to. Right. So oh, we started boy. out in Diego Garcia. We went to I think it was uh, Bahrain was the first stop. Um, and then Bahrain, we went to uh, maybe Dubai and then Dubai, we went to Naples and then Naples, we couldn't get the, the pilots there in time. So they went over hours. So we had to stay there for a few hours to get a new set of uh, pilots. And then that went to Rota, Spain and then Rota, Spain went to uh, the Azores or some shit like that. And we finally got to Norfolk, Virginia, right? It was 37 hours of fucking travel, Dean. It was <laughs> miserable. I have never... Oh, I have never, like, I've never had a hangover because I don't drink. I generally just smoke a shit ton of weed because weed tastes better and I, I don't like liver failure, right? So <laughs> with that being said, I've never had a hangover, but I got to imagine that's what it felt like because I felt like I was a third person watching everything going around. Like I was the guy behind me looking like my legs were moving, my body was moving, but I wasn't yeah. physically there. Somebody else was controlling my meat wagon at that point. It was Incredible. a long, 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 long flight. So I can only imagine how miserable those flights must have been. Excuse me. Jesus. Um, well, well, they were consistent. Yeah. But what, you, what, you've just, what you've just described, it sounds like if you could replace you and, the, and your other uh, members of the, the crew or whatever you would call that yeah. with kid versions, you've probably got a series right there. <laughs> And it would it would definitely be real then with I, going back to those kids just for just a second. Man, I loved Tom and Jerry kids as a kid, man. I loved Flintstone kids because I felt like, oh, shit, if I was in the Flintstones, this is what it would be like for me. So being a kid, I loved the pup named Scooby-Doo, too. I know a lot of the, the folks that have worked on those have said the same thing. You did. It was it was so watered down. We couldn't do anything crazy. It was so vanilla at the end of the day. Um, so I get where you guys are coming from. But, you know, just to, just to be I'm a glutton for punishment. I like those shows, team. <laughs> No, no, fair enough, and and a lot of people do. Yeah. It's just that I remember when television first came out in Australia, this just before they started paving the roads with stones. Yeah. Um, um, the Flintstones was one of the first TV series that we we actually got in the country, mm -hmm. and and I was totally aware that it was based on the honeymooners with Jack yes. Gleason, and um, that it was one of my favourite shows as a kid as well. My parents used to it was only about four things you could watch yeah and and uh, and then of course top cat was oh, based on the phil silver's show with uh doberman and all the other characters and they yeah. would famously mirror popular live action series and uh, and it's when they started to get into things like private olive oil mm -hmm. following after private benjamin uh, that i started it started to feed on itself a bit yeah you know 
But um, while they were still kind of unashamedly saying that ah, this is the honeymooners in caveman suits, <laughs> that, that that made it funny. It really did, bit. I really enjoyed. Uh, I really enjoyed Top Cat. We don't get to talk too much about that one, so I, I like being able to shout that one out. Um, Top Cat was one of my favorite cartoons. Like I, I want to, you know, the Flintstones was one of the first shows I ever remember seeing uh, as a kid. And when I think of Cartoon Network back in the day, that's what I used to think of. But Top Cat is one of those ones. Same thing with Hong Kong Fooey. Those three shows right there. Like whenever I was super super young and the TV would be on super late, that was what I would see reruns of Top Cat. I would see reruns of the Jetsons, of the Flintstones. Right. Um, I just, I loved those shows. Tom and Jerry, of course, you know, you had Looney Tunes on there, just depending on what time of day and what time of night it was, um, or what day of the week it was, excuse me, and what time of night uh, was yeah. what shows you would get. And I absolutely, like I said, absolutely loved it. Such, so fond, uh, so, such fond memories looking back at all those cartoons, man. Cause it really, I don't want to say it helped raise me or shape, you know, who I am, but seeing those shows at such a young age definitely did. You know, some of them were a little bit worse than others as far as my moral compass goes, but they're animated shows, man. They're, suppo- they're supposed to make you laugh and they're supposed to make you think they're not real and it's not real life. It's just supposed to make your imagination go haywire, right? So I, exactly. I love when those shows come up. Um, so as we start to transition towards uh, uh, A Nightmare Before Christmas, man, uh, where do you where do you fall into the fold of this one? How do you get this? This movie just, how do you get to be, be a part of this movie? I mean, this is history, really. Uh, I won't make it a long story. I'll just try and cover the main beats. But um, the fact is that I was an overseas supervisor, as I mentioned before, for Bill Hanna. And I was working in Taiwan uh, a lot, uh, in the Philippines, also a little bit in Korea. And um, it was Taiwan where there was a studio called the Cuckoo's Nest. Mm-hmm. Some of your other guests have spoken about it, but it was where all the studios would get their series produced. 800 people worked there and it was eight mezzanine levels and you would have Disney, Deke, Warner Brothers, Hanna-Barbera, each occupying a floor in the, in the place. And because at that time the English-Chinese communication wasn't quite as strong, um, the Westerners always used to hang out together. So when you'd, every day you'd finish up, and they were pretty intense days working with a big crew. Um, we'd end up having a beer mm-hmm. downstairs at the, ne- at the local restaurant, and you'd be having a beer with the Warner Brothers guys, the Deke, and all the different companies. And as the projects all finished, they'd all go back to their respective countries, myself included. But this was the days of the fax machine <laughs> and, and we, it would happen in the same way as I was talking about Chuck Jones. I would see somebody out in the street that I thought was particularly funny mm-hmm. for some reason and I would draw it and I would fax it to my friends wherever they were in the mm-hmm. world. And we used, they'd fax something back and it was just a, a, a nice way of staying in touch. Yeah. So that's the backstory. Um, what happened is I was working away in Sydney and I get a phone call from Henry Selleck, uh, the director on Nightmare. And he said, I'm working on a Tim Burton film and I'd like to talk to you about it. I said, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm actually waiting. I'm just about to ship off some animation to, uh, through FedEx. 
and I got the driver coming here any second. Can I get your number mm-hmm. and give you a call back? And I, I, I apologize, but I'm, I've got to be ready for when the shipment goes. And he, he basically said, I'll call you back. I think that's what he said <laughs> <laughs> because he said it quite angrily yeah. and then hung up on me. And I thought, oh, well, that's whatever that was. <laughs> and, and I made my shipment and he did call back and his attitude was quite a bit different. And he, and he said, look, it, we got this film we're working on with Tim Burton. We want you to be the art director. <laughs> you in or not? <laughs> And I, I, you know, I said, well, I don't know how to, how to go ahead. I was actually trying to think who Tim Burton was because it was one of those mental blank times. Yeah. But what had happened, I found out from Henry much later, was that he had interviewed something like 150 art directors. Mm-hmm. And it was a big project for Henry and he wanted to, the right person to be in that role. Yeah. So he was being particularly picky mm-hmm. and um, he decided to visit all the animation studios across the States and, and check out the talent in the studios in animation come from a 2D world, not, not a live action world. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yes. So he went to, he told me the story. He said, I went to the first studio and there was a drawing on the wall behind the guy. Mm-hmm. And it, and it caught my eye. And he said, and that from that point on, every studio I went to had somebody, some of your drawings up on the wall, facts to them. <laughs> and, it, it, and it was those facts cartoons that we were shooting back and forth. And he said, by the time I got to New York, I just thought, i got to ring you because you're the guy for the job. So he'd made his mind up that if my work was so similar to Tim's and I was in everybody's studio and they're pinned up on their wall. It had to be right. That's kind of make you feel good though, man, all of those. And I'm pretty sure you guys that you didn't think anything of it. you other than you were just trying to stay connected. Like you said, with those friends you had met from different studios, everybody was, mm-hmm. you know, messaging at that time. That was like the first instant message. That was the first, you know, I want to say social media, but I mean, you guys were laying the foregrounds for social media, you know, essentially at that, you know, you're sharing emails before email. It, it, it's fucking wild to sit here and think of if that guy doesn't travel, that guy isn't as meticulous or as particular as he wants on finding somebody that has the right vision, the right voice, the right art style. He's going to all of these different studios and he's seeing one constant and that's your artwork, man. It's just fucking wild to think how big this world is yet how small this world yeah. really is. You know what I mean? Oh, you're totally right. And, that, and I'd never lose sight of that. I mean, yeah. you know, it was one of the most golden opportunities. That and meeting with Bill Hanna on television um, were two very strong, pivotal accidents yeah. uh, that, that were kind of somehow meant to happen. So with that being said, this movie, they, they want you for the art director. Uh, what what took place after that? Obviously, you, you know, you accept the job and, you know, you guys start working. Are you working uh, exclusively in Australia again? Or are you jumping from country to country still? Or are you coming over to the States or wherever this production company is working at? Yeah, no, what, what happened was quite different for me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because that was my usual way of working. I thought I'd build a relationship and then do it from wherever I can. I didn't know. I didn't know it was a stop motion picture. Yeah. I did, I'd never worked on anything like it. I literally only knew 2D. Uh, but Henry flew me to San Francisco to their studio, mm-hmm. which was in the very early stages of being set up. And for a two-week period, we would meet with the respective department heads, mm-hmm. head of puppets, head of fabrication, set design, um, set build. And I didn't know it, but I was being tested to see how I would get on with those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, But that was my two-week interview. And the whole time, it was kind of funny because, like I said, I didn't know it was stop motion. I, I kept thinking, why, what are we doing in this big warehouse? Mm-hmm. And what, why are they hanging black curtains everywhere? <laughs> Where are all the animation desks? And, and I, I had a lot of questions. And... Um, Eventually, uh, he said, so uh, I said, what is it you want me to do exactly? And he goes, we want you to be the art director. I said, what does that mean? (laughs) He said, I want you to direct the art. You know, I don't want you to bring Tim's vision to life. I'm like, yeah, but where are all the animators? Where where are all the deaths? And he said, it's stop motion. Haven't you learned anything by meeting with all these people for two weeks? (laughs) And I said, well, I just thought they were nice people. I thought you would, you know, I didn't put two and two together until very last minute. And, uh, and then I, you know, and I said, well, okay, seriously, what do you want me to do? I mean, I, I get I had a scene plan and how to design locations and handle the elements of art direction, but what is the ultimate goal? And he said, your job will be to make it look like Tim did it. Mm-hmm. and that made sense I said okay now I get it so I bought to it uh, a sensibility of 2D animation cheating trickery into the 3D space mm-hmm. which is why you end up with things like Jack Skellington's house being so ridiculously narrow at the bottom and so wide at the top and all the sense of distorted reality so if you draw it quickly, you don't labour over it, you don't clean it up, you yeah. don't modify it, you just go with that, that's what we've got to build. So that's what I brought to it. And luckily I had a crew uh, in the art department who were insanely capable of translating that into the drawings that were needed to put it into the build. Yeah. Uh, so, so it ended up being a combination of, making sure you capture the spirit, as I mentioned earlier with cow and chicken. You, as long as you hang on to that spirit and the heart, it can't be bad. Yeah. And then you just find the way to make it happen. What is the hardest, what was the hardest part about that movie and coming up and, and figuring out what you needed to do and had to do to match Tim's vision? Uh, what, the hardest part was we were flying blind a little bit mm-hmm. to begin with. It was we knew that Halloween Town was going to be seventy percent of the movie, so visually it needed a lot of consideration, a lot of uh, geography. Mm-hmm. So, and it was so exciting uh, that you tend to want to draw everything. Yeah, 
and the, and the, the problem was really just drawing too much mm-hmm. and and just what about this what about you know just creating options and uh, and there were no shortage of options so but we weren't getting very fast feedback from Tim he was busy shooting Batman returns yeah and uh, he just wasn't available to focus on it as as we expected he might be but we, we were well, the turning point came when we were flown down there. When I say we, the director of photography, Pete Kozacek, mm-hmm. and myself, and I took down a wad of drawings on A3 and bigger paper and about 50 or 60 drawings. And Pete and I chased Tim all over the Warner's lot. We were on bicycles and they said he's on stage seven. And then we'd go over to stage seven, and then the, and the rule was if he made eye contact with you, that meant you had the opportunity to to chat. Mm-hmm. But if he didn't, you had to hide in the shadows. <laughs> so that's, that's what we did. Cloak and dagger shit, right there. Yeah, and and coupled with the fact that yet had we been driving in you know Aston Martins mm-hmm. and wearing shades and black suits, it would have been good. But we're peddling around on lots of on. <laughs> And uh, like school kids push bikes with a basket on the front. Oh, you were ET. You were you were the 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 extras for the ET reshoots, huh? That's right, the aged extras. <laughs> the uh, the sequel. Yeah, that's one of my. And, uh, I could I could just I can just imagine you guys chasing Tim Burton in ET basket bicycles. That's, that's phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and and that what Pete had in his basket was a film projector with a little strip of film hanging out. So we had to not only get Tim's attention, we had to find somewhere where we could cast this image onto the screen, onto a wall or something, <clears throat> which never happened. But when we did, did finally get to meet up with him, it was in his trailer, and they said, you've got three minutes. Jesus. And I thought, I thought, we've got three minutes to pitch 60 pieces of artwork for 70% of the film. And he started to look through it. And I thought I was watching him. I didn't need to look at the drawings. And I could tell he was not just flicking his way through it. He was actually absorbing it, totally absorbing it. And he got about five drawings through and he started to flick them and they were flying all around the trailer. And then uh, I was standing next to the door and a little golf buggy pulled up with curtains all around it. And Danny DeVito, dressed as the penguin, <laughs> pulled back the curtain. This is like noon on a Tuesday afternoon or it's like broad daylight. And he pulled the curtain back and said, honey, I'm home. <laughs> and they said, and then everyone started to go into a panic and Tim was just looking. And he said, you have, you have to go. And he goes, I have to go now. And... He rushed past and he said, look, Halloween Town is black, white and orange. I said, that's it? And he went, that's it. I went, okay, black, white and orange. So we got, he jumped in the buggy and drove off and we just picked up our drawings and got back on the plane and flew back to San Francisco. But um, Pete said to me, what did you think of that brief? I said, I think it's the perfect brief. I said, we, if, if the architecture of the stuff we showed him had been wrong, 
he would have been nervous, but it wasn't. We got the kind of gothic architectural run your hand across it and you can cut your hand mm-hmm. kind of flavour. So he was more interested in the palette and the lighting. And um, so we decided to build the sets, paint them black, and then dry brush grey gray tones and whites and highlights over the texture to create the feeling of a German expressionist drawing. So we were going to create it with paint techniques over those 3D builds. And the only thing that I added, because having an orange light source seemed a bit restrictive to me, and I know Pete thought it was going to create shackles Mm -hmm. for certain scenes. So what I did was I said, well, let's make it that underneath the town is flowing a toxic radioactive river. Mm-hmm. So you get a green glow coming out of drains, manhole covers, guttering. And so we, when, when the green hits the orange of the street lamps, yeah. you get kind of a honey colour so you can warm that up. Or you can switch off, dial down the orange and dial up the green and get an uplight of kind of Frankenstein lighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it works tonally. So we... I felt totally comfortable. I thought it was a great brief. That's that's such a cool story, man. And it, it's something that uh, I don't think we get to hear, you know, anywhere else because your title was art director, but it feels like, fuck it, with the exception of like, hey, man, just make it uh, white, black, and orange. What, 97% of this movie was what you guys came up with, man. So it, it's it, it, it's phenomenal to see like what, and I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but it always seems it's it's so crazy to see when people are handed chicken shit and they make chicken salad out of chicken shit, right? You know, and that's not saying that there's anything wrong with the original concept. That's just like you guys were handy, bare bones. They're like, uh, make it look like Tim's vision, uh, make it look like Halloween Town. And he, the only the only input he had was like white, black, and orange. It's got to be white, black, and orange. You guys really built this this world out of very bare minimum, you know information or bare minimum just anything really i mean you guys came up with this shit it's really cool to see what you guys did and what you guys came up with which which is actually something i prefer i I prefer to be trusted with the decisions i'd rather be wrong Mm -hmm. and and work at it to get it right than than start from a half-assed position you know yeah and and we had an insurance policy in in uh embodied in the name Rick Heinrichs. Yeah. Rick is a very close friend of Tim's and helped him uh, in many hundreds of ways, part of which was helped him to create Vincent, the short film. Yeah. Uh, he, Rick himself is a, an excellent sculptor and a really good um, production designer. Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and he happens to have a very strong, close bond with Tim. Yeah. So he finished on Batman Returns. He was the designer on that. And he, he moved up to San Francisco and he was our insurance policy. He was Tim's eyes and ears. So whatever we did, we would get Henry in. Henry would make his pick. I used to narrow it down to three choices, mm-hmm. A, B or C. And he'd say half of B and half of A and a touch of C. <laughs> and we'd combine that and create a new piece of artwork and then 
say to Rick, what do you think Tim would like this? And he'd say that maybe if it was something, you know, yeah. maybe lower the light, whatever his comment was, but he's very helpful. And it gave us a degree of comfort while Tim was um, in the position of not being easily accessible. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic story, man. And we just hit that hour mark that I try to make sure we hit. Uh, I want to know, man, would you would you want to come back and do a second part? Because I feel like, like I said, a lot of this stuff that we just talked about is going to trigger probably a lot of memories and a lot of stories that you might not have thought about in 10, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years now at this point, man. But would you like to come back again and we could do a second part? I'd love to. I, I think you're right. It's um, we've, we've kind of skimmed some very extensive surfaces yes we have and uh, i think it's time to maybe chip chip below the surface a little bit i do um, think so man so i'm gonna make i'm gonna make some notes on my uh little babies over there getting upset i'll make some little notes on the little pad and paper that i had here for uh going a little bit deeper into you know tim burton and then we're for sure gonna make sure we touch touch back on the cow and chicken because like i said as soon as we get off here some shit's going to hit you and you'd be like, oh, damn it. Why didn't I bring that one up, man? Yeah. Yeah, um, you're right. This is this has been fantastic because without without David, I don't get to talk to you and I don't get to hear these stories, these stories that I've never heard of, man. I, I figured when Nightmare Before Christmas said it was all Tim Burton, right? I didn't know that you guys and guys who worked on this, this show were the driving force. You guys were the train. He might have been maybe the guy throwing you know, or you're probably just checking the tickets at this point, but you guys are the conductors. You guys were the ones that was fueling the fire to keep this locomotive going, man. So it's phenomenal hearing these type of stories. And the fact that you guys had to chase him around with bicycles, like you were, like you said, the aged up extras and ET, that is one of my favorite stories. And that right there is probably going to be every week. Every time I do a, an episode, I always do a little teaser trailer. A hundred percent. That's probably going to be my teaser trailer right there is you guys <laughs> on motor or on little bicycles, chasing around timber <laughs> Danny DeVito pops up as the penguin, man. That was a phenomenal story. I appreciate all the stories you told uh, You told here. Um, with that being said, man, uh, if, if we got fans out there of Dean Taylor, and I know we got some fans out there of Dean Taylor, but if, if they want to come and say hi to you, where can they find you? Can they find you on social media or anything like that? Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I've got a presence on Instagram. Okay. Um, which is Mr. Underscore Dean Underscore Taylor. Beautiful. And I put up I, I put up quite a bit of stuff that, of my own project on there, okay. and um, and what I like about it is I, the reason I started it was I, I really enjoy to see young new talent, mm -hmm. and I actually sort of without with being really careful like make comment on people's artwork if I think it's going to be helpful. Yeah, and uh, and I've got a little handful of. Um, fantastic young artists who seem to enjoy that that's and, awesome um, you're paying it forward you're you're somebody's bill hannah man you're somebody's chuck jones that's got to feel good well it does and it's a deliberate move because i just think it's um there's so many ways you can produce work these days so much resource mm -hmm. you tend to forget the what the essence of what you're doing is 100%. You can do a you can do a beautiful copy of something, but you've got to find that heart. And wherever I see the need for that, I jump in. That's a. That's, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, that's it. I jump in without without interfering. I make yeah. helpful suggestions, but uh, Instagram is it. 
That's beautiful, man. And uh, I'll make sure we hit that follow button as soon as we're done here, man. Uh, like I said, it, it's been phenomenal. I, I can't wait to have a part two. I'll reach back out to you in a couple couple days to see where you're at as far as I know the holidays are coming up. So I know a lot of people like to travel, depending on where you're at in the world. You may or may not be traveling right now. So, but like I said, I'll reach out to you in just a couple of days. Now, I have had a blast talking to you. Like you said, we skimmed the surface. Ladies and gentlemen, we're next time we're here, we're bringing shovels, we're bringing pickaxes, and we're bringing <laughs> a whole bunch of shit. We're going to mine the hell out of Dean Taylor here for a little while and find out all the little information that is going to pop up after we get off this call, man. He's been Dean. I've been Julian. It's been a What's in My Head podcast. And it's been another piece of your childhood. Good night. Thanks again for checking out the What's in My Head podcast. If you're digging what you're hearing, leave us a five-star rating. That will help other fans of animation and pop culture find the show. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button, tell a friend, and I'll see you guys and gals next week. Good night.